0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Granite Justice, navigating civil legal issues in your daily life. I'm your host, Shane Cooper, an Associate Dean at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Please remember as you listen, this podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing said here by either party constitutes legal advice of any kind or creates any attorney client relationship between a listener and New Hampshire legal assistants. Or 603 Legal Aid, or the UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. It is possible that the law has changed after we recorded this podcast episode, or the information shared does not exactly fit with your specific situation. For the most up to date information or get legal help, please visit 603legalaid.org. Today's guest on Granite Justice is Aaron Jacina. Aaron has been a paralegal in the Portsmouth Office of New Hampshire Legal Assistance for 15 years and is Director of New Hampshire Legal Assistance Domestic Violence Advocacy Project. Aaron's work on the Domestic Violence Advocacy Project is primarily focused on assisting domestic violence victims and survivors with their protective orders and high lethality family law cases. And you've worked closely with local domestic violence crisis center advocates statewide to provide case assessments, referral coordination, and training opportunities for agency staff, and you've provided testimony in the state legislature on bills affecting victims and survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking. I also understand that you've served two terms on the New Hampshire Family Mediator Certification Board, and you've served as a member of the working group on the Task Force on Domestic Violence Cases in the New Hampshire judicial system in 2022. That's quite an impressive record and a lot of work you've done in this area, so we're honored to have you on the show. So welcome, Aaron.
1: Thank you, Shane. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to everyone about this topic today.
0: Well, great. And we're going to dive into that topic. It's a very serious one, and hopefully we can impart a lot of information out there for people in our community. And the topic today, will be talking about civil protective orders in cases of domestic violence. So Aaron, if I could just ask you to please start off and just describe what is a civil protective order in a case of domestic violence?
1: Great. Thank you, Shane. So We're talking specifically about civil protective orders involving domestic violence. People should also understand that there are other types of civil protective orders, but today we're focusing specifically on domestic violence cases. And so really just boiling it down, a domestic violence protective order is really meant to protect the victim or survivor or or plaintiff, as they are referred to, in the court case, to really protect them from abuse by either their intimate partner, a family member, or a household member.
0: And could you explain what? How does someone qualify to make a petition for a protective order? What does it take to be someone that would qualify to, to file one of these?
1: Sure. So really, there are three things that you need to demonstrate to the judge to show that you are eligible for a domestic violence protective order. The first thing you need to show is that you have a qualifying relationship under the law, so that the person who is abusing you is your intimate partner, so spouse, ex-spouse, dating relationship if the person is a family member or a household member. So you have to show that there is a qualifying relationship. That's the first step. The second step is that you have to show that abuse has occurred under New Hampshire's law. And abuse can mean a bunch of different things, but you have to make sure that you are able to demonstrate to the judge, to the court, that you have experienced abuse as defined by New Hampshire's law. And then the last piece is that you need to be able to demonstrate that there is a present, incredible threat to your physical safety.
0: And so, just to make sure that I've, I heard that correctly, the three pieces, as you mentioned, qualifying relationship, that abuses occurred under New Hampshire law, and that there's a present, incredible threat. Is, is that right?
1: That's right. And I would just like to add about the abuse piece, what it means to qualify under New Hampshire's law. So abuse can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And we know that there are many forms of abuse. There's psychological abuse, emotional abuse, financial abuse. All of that is abusive behavior that someone may experience. But those are not all necessarily things that New Hampshire law considers when making a final decision on whether or not to issue a domestic violence protective order. So in New Hampshire, under New Hampshire law, what is the judge looking for? Has there been a physical assault? Has there been a sexual assault or attempted physical assault or attempted sexual assault? Is there criminal threatening involved, interference with freedom, which is the stalking type behavior, harassment, destruction, damage of property, and abuse of animals. So those are the types of behaviors that the judge is considering when making that determination. But I do just want to be clear that there are other types of abuse that may not necessarily be part of the determination in New Hampshire but I'd want people to understand and to validate that there are other types of abuse and that if you are experiencing those things, it is abuse and you can seek help for those things as
0: well. That's helpful to, to clarify. And if I could also go back on the point you raised about qualifying relationships, I think I heard in there dating partners. And so when I hear the word relationship or qualifying relationship, I at least my initial impression, it makes it feel like that's pretty restricted, but it sounds like this isn't, only familial relationships, or in an active marriage, or some sort of uh, arrangement like that, is that is that about right?
1: Yes, and the definition of New Hampshire state law, which is 173B, that's the actual law we're talking about, sets out very clear guidance for who's eligible and who is not eligible. And really, I just you are correct that it does not have to be somebody who is currently married. It doesn't even have to be somebody who's ever, when I say dating relationship, the statute is clear that it doesn't have to be a sexually involved relationship. So that if you do have, let's say a boyfriend, girlfriend situation, but they've never had sex, that person would be eligible for a domestic violence protective order.
0: That's very helpful. So now walking into the next question then. So someone out there listening who is in a qualifying relationship and they feel that they're facing a credible present threat, where would someone start in this process uh, with this?
1: So I would always say, and that's a great question, Shane, I would always refer someone to their local domestic violence crisis center within their community as a first point of contact. They can get the supports that they need in terms of safety planning. If they are interested in getting a protective order, the crisis center advocates can explain that process to them and help them get started. Certainly, if somebody is in immediate risk of harm or death, we would want them to go to the police if they feel comfortable and it's safe for them to do so. That would be the first point of contact in that situation. Otherwise, always, I would recommend that somebody get connected as soon as possible with their local crisis center.
0: That's really helpful to think through first the immediate steps, local crisis center, possibly the police. And then when you get that initial contact and support, that's when they would potentially consider the civil protective order that we're talking about. And, and then I guess the next question I have then is assume then we move forward to, yes, we're going to file a civil protective order. What would one typically put or say in this petition? How would that work?
1: Great question. So when I am working with clients, I'm working with victims and survivors, and we're talking about filing a domestic violence petition, and what do I put in this? First, of course, we're going over, okay, do you meet the three requirements? Do you meet qualifying relationship? Do you meet the definition of abuse under our law? Are you afraid for your safety? So once we've determined those pieces, and the answer is yes, then we move forward to what should I really put in this petition? Generally, when I'm advising someone, I would say, let's start with the most recent event. What happened that caused you to come to the courthouse, caused you to go to the crisis center to file a domestic violence petition? Something prompted that. And that's really what the judge wants to know. What caused you to go into the courthouse today to file this protective order? So I tell people start with the most recent event and then work yourself backwards. I think there is a tendency for people to put in every event that has happened to them. And let's say it was a 15 year marriage and they feel pressure in that moment as they're sitting in the courthouse and filling out the petition to say, I have to put I I need to remember every incident that happened over the last... 15 years. That is not the case. Certainly context and history is important. And if there were past events of domestic violence, the judge would certainly want to know about those things. It further supports your petition and shows a pattern and a history of abuse. But really, again, the focus is why are you here today? What happened that made you say, I need this protection now? So start with the most recent event. If there are other events, you can certainly include those, but you are not going to get in trouble if you don't put everything in there that ever happened. And then I, I would suggest that someone end with, why do you need this order? What is going to happen if you don't get this order? What are you afraid of? what are you afraid is going to happen if you don't get this order and that goes to the credible present threat to the safety piece so yeah that that's what i would say generally should go in the petition and i think oftentimes people are concerned about dates and what if i don't get the date right or what if i don't have the time just right i would just tell people in that situation to do your best. If you can't remember the exact date, try to remember the season. Was it cold? Was it winter? Was it near Christmas time? Was it near one of your kiddo's birthdays? Anything that might be able to alert the judge or anyone reading the petition to when the, when the abuse occurred. But it, you don't have to be so specific if you can't be about the exact date and
0: time. And the next follow-on question I have about these protective orders then as you're filling this out is, and you mentioned the why piece, but what type of relief would come out of this protective order? Is it simply just it tells the other person stay away? Is is that what this is about or, or what other protections might there be with this?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Shane. And I think that In terms of language, we want people to be aware that these are called protective orders. They're not called restraining orders. It's not a domestic violence restraining order. You will hear that term used when referring to these types of orders, but really we want to get away from that term and think of them as protective orders, because certainly what somebody is looking for when they get these types of orders is for the behavior to stop. They want the person to stay away from them. They don't wanna have contact. It's unsafe for that person to be near them. They want the behavior to stop. So absolutely there is that restraining or no contact piece that's part of these protective orders. But the other piece is that these orders are really meant to stabilize a person, a victim, a survivor, a person and their family within this moment. And so you are able to ask, the other type of relief that you can ask for in addition to please keep this person away from me is, Are there children involved? Does there need to be some sort of temporary visitation schedule put in place or no visitation because there's a concern for the kiddo's safety as well as the parent's safety? Is there a responsibility for somebody to pay the mortgage or utilities or the rent on the apartment? Was this person physically assaulted and as a result of the assault, they missed three weeks of work? You are able to ask that you be that the abuser or the defendant pay you for the time that you had to miss work. If part of the abuse was the destruction of property, and that destruction of property was your cell phone, the person smashed your cell phone, smashed a television, smashed your car windshield, that's damaging property, destruction of property, and you can request that the court order, the judge order, that those that you be reimbursed for those costs of getting the repairs, for example. Child support, getting a child support order in place. And there are other things that I'm not mentioning right now, but that just gives you an idea that this goes beyond just telling the person to stay away from you. Yes, it's to make sure that you are safe, but also in addition to that physical safety is just looking at the safety of the person, the whole safety of the person, the whole safety of the family unit and making sure that they're financially stable and otherwise so that they can really you know, be in a, at least on a temporary basis, in a position where they can kind of take a breath and say, okay, what is it that I need next? What do I need help with next? But this gives them some time, some stability to be able to make those other decisions that are going to most likely come up down the road.
0: So Aaron, that, that's an eye opener, I would imagine for those out there listening, because if I hear the words civil protective order, I, I kind of think like you started out with, you know, right away thinking, stay away, restraining type things. But this is a really broad base level of things that you can ask for, for the judge to perhaps order on a whole bunch of different fronts, whether it's economic safety or residential support and having a, a place to stay or to deal with damaged property and in other ways to restore um, the survivor or and, or victim. I didn't realize that that in this one thing, all of those type of things that you mentioned can be um, addressed.
1: Yes, absolutely, and I, I think that victims and survivors should feel empowered to ask for those things. I think it's probably easy in the context of a court case to focus on those specific no-contact order provisions, that piece of the protective order, and handle, let's say, the financial piece or the parenting piece in a divorce or parenting case down the road. But I would just really encourage people to push back on that a little bit and say, This is relief that I can request under New Hampshire's law, and there are reasons behind this. So I'm going to ask for those things. So I just I I would encourage people to not be put off by that if they are feeling like the purpose of the protective order is only to get the no contact piece. And, And I think that knowing how to do that and knowing the right way to do that is why it's so important to connect with the crisis center or to connect with. 603 legal aid, and New Hampshire legal assistance.
0: Absolutely. And and that takes me to the next step. So after one has filled out the paperwork, what is the process like after someone does that? Once you fill it out, what happens next?
1: So if somebody is filing for a domestic violence petition in the courthouse, they should be prepared to be there for a period of time. So let's say somebody goes into the courthouse at nine o'clock, they go to the court window, the clerk's window, and they're given a domestic violence petition and they fill it out and they hand it in. You may be there for a period of time. There may not be a judge available right away to review your petition. So I always encourage people, especially if they have children or a job that they need to let their boss know, you know you might need to have backup plans for who's going to watch the kids and do i need to take a day off of work or time off of work because you there's just no way of predicting how long it's going to take before you get an answer so you fill out your petition you hand it in and you wait and you wait for the judge to review your petition and decide whether or not to issue temporary orders
0: and i'm trying to think of it you know in a very specific way if uh, we mentioned right at the outset you know, getting help from the local crisis center, or perhaps even the police, knowing that there's this civil protective order available. It, and from what you mentioned, it sounds like that is filed physically at the courthouse. But assume that one is getting some assistance from a place like 603 Legal Aid. How does that typically work? Is that a visit to the office at 603 Legal Aid before the courthouse? Or how does that kind of work out if you're getting uh, legal support as you fill out the, the, the petition?
1: So if you need assistance filling out the actual petition, I would recommend doing that with your crisis center advocate. Um, They are trained, they are equipped to work with a victim on what to put in the petition. They can't give legal advice, but they can support the person through that process. Certainly someone can reach out to 603 Legal Aid either by phone or an online intake, but those can take some time to process. And if this is something that needs immediate relief, immediate protection, that may not be the Best initial response. Certainly, if you get a protective order, a temporary protective order, and you want representation at the final hearing stage, that would be at a point where you would definitely want to contact 603 directly, 603 legally directly, or the Crisis Center to complete an application for services to see if they can be connected with an attorney for their final hearing.
0: I see. And so it sounds like, a, from what I heard in your answer, there's a little bit of a judgment call to be made in determining how, I mean, it, it's definitely a present and credible threat, but depending on the that immediacy you're looking for, that might be the reason why you're at the courthouse immediately filling out the petition, as opposed to perhaps getting some legal support or advice as you fill out a petition. Am I getting that right? That there's a, maybe a little bit of a judgment call on, on the timing of filing it?
1: Yes. And- I, I, would, I would agree with that for sure. And I really do, the crisis center advocates do this on a daily basis, work with victims to help them fill out the petitions. And ideally, we would have an attorney there as well. So it would be crisis center advocate, victim, and legal aid advocate or another attorney. But unfortunately, we just don't have the resources to be able to do that. So we do rely very heavily on our crisis center partners, we do trainings together on what should be in petitions. They are also welcome to call us at any time, the Crisis Center Advocates, and say, hey, I have someone in my office right now. They're filling this out. Do you think this is the best thing to put in the petition or not? Because there are some things that you may not want to put in the petition, something that might incriminate you criminally or get you in trouble criminally. You know, for example, you write in your petition that you were physically assaulted by your boyfriend, but during the physical assault, you had to punch him in the face to get him off you, and his nose was bleeding. And, you know, yes, was that defense? Sure. But do you want to be putting yourself at risk that, you know, somebody might say that you've committed a crime? You probably don't want to put in there that you're working with a crisis center. That is confidential information that is protected under our law, and you don't want to do anything that would open the possibility up that any of that information could be released. So there are a lot of factors that go into this. And so, whenever possible, sure, I, you know, best practice would be for somebody to get legal assistance in advance of filing, but absence all of the resources that we would need to be able to do that, I think what we can offer is connection with the crisis center advocates, the training with the crisis center advocates, the ability for the crisis center advocates to call us and say, hey, I've got this situation, what do you think? And and then after that point, so getting them that initial temporary relief, and then legal assistance or a private attorney coming in and being able to um, help them get The final order, you know, but that petition piece is critical. If there are well crafted petitions, you're more likely to be successful in getting a final order. You know, I've seen people, parents in particular, who go and file domestic violence petitions and abuse, they've been abused but they have kiddos and they are so focused on the abuse to the kids because they're parents and they love and they care about their kids and they want to make sure their kids are safe. So that is their focus in the petitions. That's not going to get somebody a domestic violence protective order because it's meant to protect the person. It can indirectly protect the kids through that other relief that I was talking about, but it needs, the court needs to know what happened to you and why do you need the protection? So things like that, that somebody can put in a petition that they don't know that it's not what the court wants to hear. But the crisis Center advocates do know what the courts want to hear about. We know what the courts want to hear about. And so making connections with the crisis center in the first instance and then with with us, I think um, would really hopefully set somebody up for to be successful in getting a final protective order.
0: Thanks for working through those details. It's I think very important for those out there listening um, to consider is ensuring they get that outside support, uh, as you mentioned, with the the, the crisis center and, and others uh, so they can be successful in this. And, and that leads me to my next question, which is that if that civil protective order is granted, how long does that protection last?
1: So- If somebody is granted a temporary protective order, that is good for at least 30 days. The final hearing by law has to be scheduled and heard within 30 days. Certainly a defendant could ask for a continuance. A defendant can also ask that the hearing be expedited or moved up to within five days. But if a temporary order is issued or not, a hearing has to be held within 30 days. So then once that final hearing happens, the temp- if there is a temporary order in effect, that order will stay in effect until the judge makes a final determination, whether a final order is granted or not, if you are able to demonstrate that you met the three requirements.
0: And after the, the temporary phase, if you will, how does one make this a permanent order?
1: So the court will schedule a final hearing, whether the temporary order is granted or not. So somebody fills out a domestic violence petition, you're really three possible scenarios, I would say. So the petition could be dismissed, a temporary order could be issued and a final hearing scheduled within 30 days, or no temporary order is issued and a hearing is set for, for 30 days. And then what happens is A final hearing is scheduled where both parties can attend with an attorney, without an attorney. A crisis center advocate can attend the hearing uh, with the victim, and they're 30 minutes long and the judge after the hearing will make a determination. Some judges make decisions right there on the spot, and other judges uh, take it under advisement, which means they're thinking about it, and then a decision will be made and you'll receive that in the mail. But it's also important to note that how the defendant finds out about this is once somebody files the petition, and a temporary order is issued or not, but a hearing is scheduled in 30 days, that defendant needs to be served with the petition and the notice that says when the final hearing is happening. So that is how the defendant is notified that the process has started.
0: I see. And do you have any tips or, or information for someone that doesn't get the temporary order that they'd apply for?
1: Yes. So I mentioned service, uh, service on the defendant. Um, So what is supposed to happen is when somebody files a domestic violence petition, as I mentioned earlier, the judge makes a decision, reviews the petition and makes a decision about whether or not to issue or to give the victim survivor a temporary protective order. If the judge says, no, I don't think there's enough here to issue a temporary order before they make that decision, they are supposed to talk to the victim and and ask some follow-up questions. Sometimes that process doesn't happen. And if that process doesn't happen, that can be incredibly dangerous. Because what may happen if the victim doesn't withdraw their petition at that point is that the defendant will be served with the petition. So they will get everything that the person wrote down, everything that they're telling the court happened to them. The defendant will get a copy of that and there will be no temporary orders in place. So that means that there was no relinquishment of firearms. That means the person may still be in the shared apartment or home that they're in. That means that there may be um, no temporary orders related to visitation of the children. That places the victim in an incredibly dangerous position. And we know that the time a victim leaves the relationship is the most dangerous time. So this is just adding to that, adding to that potential lethality. So I would encourage anyone who goes to court and files a domestic violence petition who does not get a temporary order and who did not talk to the judge that, they push back a little bit. And I know that's really hard to do. And that's why it's super important to have an advocate with you at the time. But if you're able to do it, say to the court staff, I didn't get to talk to the judge and a judge made a decision about this case. I really want to be able to talk to the judge. And at that point, you should be able to talk to the judge and the process should go as normal. But if it does not, and the court staff doesn't say to you, you may wanna consider withdrawing this petition, then that is something that you should consider on your own is knowing that you can withdraw the petition. And if you withdraw the petition, then that means the defendant won't be served with it and he won't know, or the defendant, they won't know that you went to court that day and filed it. So I just, that is absolutely, Just a safety tip that I want everyone to be aware of, that if no temporary orders are in place, consider withdrawing the petition, whether you spoke to the judge or not, and they decided not to change their mind about issuing temporary orders, you may want to consider withdrawing the petition at that point, just so the defendant won't be served and you won't have that increased risk of the defendant or the abuser knowing about what you did and not having any protections in place.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I, I wouldn't have thought of it in that way, the sort of the end state, if you will. It, you know, you, I assume, think optimistically it'll be approved and therefore there's orders. I do have a question about that in a moment, I'll get to in a second. But I think what I'm learning from you today, uh, Aaron, is that there is that risk that comes with filing this paperwork, not having it approved or the petition granted. And all that's really essentially happened is that you've put the other person on notice that, that you went to court to file an order against that person and the court ultimately didn't make an order. So in some way that almost would heighten uh, the stress in that situation and that what you're suggesting here is something for consideration is that if you know it's not going to work out, then withdraw that so that that doesn't make it back to the other party.
1: Correct. And that doesn't mean I don't... I absolutely don't want anyone walking away after listening to this podcast to say okay well i'm not going to file a domestic violence petition there's no way i'm doing that that does not mean that you can't go back and file a new petition maybe there was just something missing and that would be you know that would be important i would say at that point to say all right i need to connect with the crisis center or i need to connect with legal assistance or 603 legal aid or a private attorney if you have the resources to do that so that that person can sit down with you and say, okay, here's what I think you were missing in your petition. Can we draft this in such a way, or can we help you write this in such a way that is going to give the judge a better picture of what was happening or what is happening, so that the judge can make those temporary orders so i don't want anyone to think that all right well i'm not going to try this i want people to walk away from this podcast one knowing that there are some things you do need to be aware of and some things to think about that you may not it may not have you know in that moment i mean unless you're in the legal field or, or a crisis center advocate who's experienced this before you probably wouldn't know what that means when you walk away and your petition's still there and going to get served, but there are no temporary orders in place. That connection may not be made. And that's totally understandable. But I just, so I want people to be aware of the pitfalls, but also to feel hopeful that this is a process that can give them some, hopefully, peace of mind and that there is a system in place within our state that. Takes very seriously the threat of violence and what victims are experiencing and Uh, this is an effort to hopefully make that stop. Whether somebody's reaching out to the police department or going to the court for assistance or to the crisis center or to legal aid, that there are resources out there to support victims. And that I think is the biggest takeaway. And yes, there are some pitfalls to the system and it doesn't work perfectly every single time. And we're human and we make mistakes, but that we will work with you in whatever way possible that we are able to, to and our partners as well to help you through this process and hopefully get you an outcome that will keep you and your family safe.
0: And that leads to the the next question is is that when the protective order is issued, my question is what happens if the other party isn't abiding by that? What what would what is the enforcement mechanism, if you will, on a protective order like this?
1: That's a great question. So. That is where there's a intersect between a civil order and the criminal justice system. So it's if somebody violates a domestic violence protective order, I would go to the local police department and I would say, hey, I have this protective order and they violated it. And I would hope that the police would act in that situation, would investigate, would arrest, would be charged with a violation of the domestic violence protective order, and in which case, if that happens, that's that's part of the criminal system. Somebody could also file a contempt motion within the domestic violence case. But you know, if somebody is you know showing up at your house or sending you messages or is not paying the child support that they were were you know required to pay under the final domestic violence order. I would absolutely go to your local police department and talk to an officer there about how they are going to enforce the order.
0: That's helpful. Thanks for that. And let's also the other question that comes to mind is if this is after hours or the middle of the holidays, a time when you know places are just not open, what would one do in a situation like that where they need this sort of support?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Shane, because we know that domestic violence is not restricted to work hours of nine to five and things are happening at homes at night or on the weekends or on holidays. And if that is the case and the courthouse isn't open, always, you know, first the domestic violence hotline, statewide hotline is available 24 seven. But if it happens on, let's say, Sunday morning and the courts are closed, that person would go to their local police department and they would make a statement, fill out an emergency request for an emergency order, So essentially what that looks like, it doesn't look the same as a domestic violence petition, but essentially you are giving the police officer the same facts. The police officer gets on the phone with the on-call judge and then that judge makes a decision about whether or not to issue an emergency order. And that's probably an oversimplification of the process, but that's essentially what's going on. That order is only good really for 24 hours. So if it happened on Sunday at 10 a.m., You have until 4 p.m. on Monday to go to the courthouse and fill out a domestic violence petition. So it's really only good for that day and through the next um, business day that the courts are open. So if somebody gets that emergency order, they should not think that that's good for an extended period of time. It's really to keep you safe and protected until the courthouse is open and you can go in and go through the normal process of filing for a domestic violence protective order.
0: Well, that's helpful to know that at least there's this option in this emergency order to bridge the gap, if you will, until we do get to the Monday to Friday working hours scenario with the courthouse.
1: And and Shane, I should also mention too, I don't think I mentioned this, but where does somebody file for a domestic violence protective order? So domestic violence protective orders are filed in the family division of the circuit court. Stalking petitions are filed in district court, domestic violence petitions are filed in the family division. So you can really apply or fill out a petition in any family court or any family division in the state. I think traditionally people will either file where they live or if they fled and the defendant lives in a particular part of state they might file where the defendant lives so the defendant won't know where they have relocated to. But let's say somebody lives in Manchester but works in Nashua, and Nashua during the day, you have an hour for lunch. Nashua is a convenient location for you to go during the day. It's a safe place for you to go during the day to fill out a domestic violence petition. A victim can absolutely file a, a petition in that courthouse, and then that court staff will make sure it gets to the appropriate court that has jurisdiction over the case. So probably in that case would send it back to Manchester if that's where the defendant lives or that's where the victim lives.
0: Thank you for clarifying that. I'm, I'm glad that you raised that that point as well. But, well, Aaron, you, you opened the, a window on a lot of different things that I imagine many of our listeners uh, didn't know about. Uh, I certainly didn't. And so I've learned a lot from you today. And I just want to thank you for your hard work and your tireless advocacy on behalf of survivors and victims of domestic violence. Uh, the fact that you've been doing it for over 15 years is just incredible.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the conversation and hopefully that um, anyone listening has some tips and, and knows where to go to reach out if they need help.
0: Thanks, uh, Aaron, and thank you for your time. This was Granite Justice, a podcast collaboration of the UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law, 603 Legal Aid, New Hampshire Legal Assistance, the New Hampshire Campaign Legal Services, and the Granite State News Collaborative. Thanks for your time.